action. Welcome to Torn Stubb with me, Robert Gershenson, photographer and big old film fan, and Joshua Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we went to the movies a lot in 2019. We're going to run down our bottom and our top films of the year, starting with the bottom. Joshua, <laughs> the best place to start. <laughs> Let's hear your number five, your fifth bottom film <laughs> of 2019. I have to begin by apologising because, unfortunately, pretty much all five of my films are actually genre films. That's perfectly fine. Which is really annoying because I'm a huge genre fan. I love supporting sci-fi and horror films. But the problem is, this year has been quite this poor. (laughs) It's been a real low point for cinema, I think. It's been such a three-star year for film, I think. Yeah. It's been a kind of a, yeah, it was all right kind of year. It has been a meh year. Yeah. And, like, the big, big stuff has been... Like the Marvel stuff. Yeah. Um, but even that's not been... It's been all right. Mm. And like sequels to things like Terminator, things like that. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, so I'm really apologetic and upset that my five films are genre films. But anyway, number five is Gemini Man by Ang Lee. I never saw it. Well, don't bother. <laughs> it's So give us a rundown. What, I mean, what, what's it's, it about? So oh, there's two Will Smiths. One of them is him as he, the age he is now. He's a kind of getting too old for this shit kind of assassin. Um, he basically ends up hunted by this young guy who looks a lot like a young Will Smith. Um, but it is a young Will Smith. And it is a young Will Smith and he's been cloned. But they've and CGI de-aged him but, or have yeah, they yeah. used footage from like Fresh Prince Bel-Air <laughs> era? No, they've de-aged him like using the special CGI thing that they've been doing in the Marvel films. Does he look like his son? Does he look like does he look like himself back in the he day? He does actually. It's really really well done. It's very impressive. Yeah. Um and yeah, it's it is a little bit like having a tiny bit of Will Smith back from when he was good in the 90s. You know, uh-huh. He looks like a slightly younger version of his 90s persona. Mm-hmm. Um and it's just dated as hell like it's it's a script that's been knocking around hollywood since the 90s so it's been on the blacklist it was originally meant to be directed by tony scott god bless his soul um and it's ever since then it's just been kicking around and finally ang lee picked it up dusted it off and (laughs) and kind of didn't seem to change anything to update it so it feels like a stuck in the 90s thriller um, so the, it feels like an old Verhoeven movie. It feels really old, but not in like an enjoyable way. It feels dated as hell. It, like so, they try to jazz it up with 120 whatever it is uh, frames per second. Um, oh, some slow mo stuff. Huh? No, the really high def thing. Oh, do you mean 4K? No, it's 4K, but it's also that the frame rate, the frame rate ratio thing that they do right. that okay. they did for the first Hobbit film that everyone was like but you could it's so, so it high flat. def that it looks like EastEnders and you can see the, <laughs> the beard stuck on and all that yeah. kind of stuff so Gemini Man represents both you know the cutting edge technology for the de-aging of Will Smith but also um, you know the cutting edge thing with the whole frame rate whatever it is um, but also then just this really fucking dated story that 
Um, he goes on this thing where he's trying to stop the young Will Smith and he's got Mary Elizabeth Winston along for the ride and they have this really awkward kind of will they, won't they romance with this terrible dialogue. Um, and it's like, he doesn't really figure out that this guy is a young clone of him until about two thirds of the way through. And we yet, as the audience know from the outside. Yeah, but I mean, look at the poster. The poster has <laughs> two Will Smiths on, one's young, one's old. Right. So yeah, it's just terrible. But it could have been a time traveling thing like Looper. Yeah, it could have been, but it wasn't. And it's just terrible. And um, I'm sad to say that I didn't love it. Fair enough. What's your number five, Rob? Mine is a film we've already covered on the podcast. Oh. It's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. It it just, I mean, if you want to hear us go in depth, we do talk about it in its own episode. But with hindsight... Hmm. Have you watched it again since? No, no, no. I have, I've only seen it the once. But in hindsight, the things that I remember most from it are the things I don't enjoy about it. Okay. Um, and that's never a good sign when the bad sticks in your mind more than the good. Yeah. Um, it's not a super terrible movie, which is why it's number five. So it's the least bad of my films. Mm-hmm. But I do think it deserves to be in the bottom of people's lists. Okay. Because it is mid-tier Quentin Tarantino. It is baggy and far too long. No story. It Yeah, no story. It needs to be re-edited mm. to a 90-minute film. That's all it is. Mm. A 90-minute film with a lot of filler. Okay. Yeah. That's a very controversial worst movie. Well, not but... everything he's done is great, right? <clears throat> no. Oh, God, Death no. Proof? No. Hello? No. Yeah. I think that people got really excited by the stars, the era, the, the controversy around Sharon, State, uh, sorry, Sharon Tate, and it just seemed like it was going to be this great fanfare Hollywood film. And it just and I think was, a, it was disappointing. a QT masturbation film. Yeah, essentially. And I do wonder if if you grew up in the 60s and 70s and you're really, really familiar with everything it's referencing. Yeah. It might have that nostalgic thing that people go crazy for in Stranger Things and yes. stuff like that. So I think you might be right there because I've heard Brett Snellis talk about it and he loves it. Mm. And he loves the fact that he can, you know, the, 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 the fact that Quentin Tarantino has recreated what Hollywood looked like back in the day. Brilliant. Amazing. And that's the Hollywood that um, Bretty Snellis grew up in. Yeah. Set in the late 60s and the early 70s, mid 70s and onto the 80s. But for us, no. no. You're right. You know, There's we watch no Stranger emotional... Things and think, oh, that's our, that's our youth. We that's used to us. do that. Yeah. That aesthetic is everything we watched. Mm-hmm. E.T., Batteries Not Included, all that. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your number four? Number four is Glass. Glass. That was which is M Night Shyamalan closing up ah. his Unbreakable trilogy. Uh, well, his his retrofitted yes, uh, reverse engineered. That's it. Yeah, massively. Uh, I never yeah. saw it because I didn't see Split. Uh, no, what's the first one? Unbreakable. Unbreakable. I didn't see. Unbreakable. You never saw Unbreakable. Well, I've, I've seen it up into the the bit where Bruce Willis is on the train or the bus. <laughs> Uh, the train is the opening of the film. I've seen the opening of the <laughs> film and I don't know why it turned up. I don't, I don't think I was enjoying it. Oh, you should really watch it. I really, really rate Unbreakable. I think okay. it's probably, it probably his best film, if not his second best from After Sixth Sense. Okay. Um, Unbreakable was great and I, I really loved the idea of him doing a sequel and, you know, when Unbreakable came out in, what, 2000, 2001? Something like that. There was this big 
like a you know thing where everyone's asking him, are you going to do a sequel? And he's like, yes, yes, I've got two and three planned, blah, blah, blah. They never happened. <laughs> so then when, when the split, at the end of Split, you discover that that film is actually set in this unbreakable universe. Yeah, because he's in the bar and he sees... And the music comes up, yeah, and you realise that that's happening. Then you've got Glass, which is the end and the culmination, but it's just such a disappointment. It's like... It's just so methodical and uninterested in its characters. It kind of, it's obviously on a budget, so it's it kind of locks them all up literally in a uh, hospital. Is it a one location film? It's almost an entirely one location film. Um, and it just doesn't know what to do with its characters. It just doesn't have seem to have any interest in them. Uh, and it's just painful. And then when, it, when it's the final showdown, it's laughable. And when it should be tragic, um, it's just not. Good. What's the actual storyline? Uh, oh, God, I can't even remember. It's basically... Um, <laughs> that bad, oh you God. can't remember. <laughs> something, to do with, something to do with trying to capture and incarcerate James McAvoy's character who has multiple personality yes. disorder. So they capture him um, and they shove him in this hospital where Bruce Willis's character has also... I think he helps catch him, but then he gets put in there as well. I don't know. And also Samuel L. Jackson's Mr. Glass right. is also incarcerated there. But he looks like a veg he looks like a vegetable. <laughs> he's acting like a vegetable, so you're not really sure if he's if he's listening to everything that's going on or yeah. if he actually has lost his mind. Um and it's just about them breaking out and it's bad. So it, it's it's got it tries to invert fl- flashes of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah, and it, it, you know there are there are flashes of what could be a good film, and it does try to invert the comic book structure. You know, there's towards the end there's the hint that there's going to be this enormous massive showdown at this uh, skyscraper in the city, which never happens because it, the film does something else right um and actually when they were talking about what what was going to happen the skyscraper i was like oh god that means this film is going to be another half an hour at least (laughs) and it wasn't thankfully um it's just a missed opportunity basically but hasn't that been m night Shyamalan's issue Mm. for almost every film everything has been a missed opportunity i think he had a really good stretch I mean, the village is where it all started started to come unstuck. That's four films in. Yeah, and then after that, it's been really shonky. Yeah, like nothing. And I, I remember in the culture that it was a he was shit hot, and then everyone just turned. Yeah, it was the like, village is not bad. No, the village is all right, but mm. it, it was almost like everyone decided he was the new Hitchcock, and then suddenly he became like the new Wyans brothers. <laughs> <laughs> Go. Wow. And yeah. on that note, <laughs> uh, my bottom fourth film yeah. is one of the biggest disappointments of this year. Dan Gilroy's Velvet Buzzsaw. Oh, I didn't even finish it. So Dan Gilroy, brilliant, brilliant film he made called Nightcrawler yeah. with Jake Gyllenhaal. And that's Jake's best performance. One of those ones where the actor steps away and the character steps forward and he's unrecognizable it helps that jake obviously lost a lot of weight but it's more than that it was a film that wanted to skewer our relationship to news media outlets how that footage is captured how it is then um distorted by a news channel a network with an agenda it actually wanted to say something and it had characters that had an arc or it had characters that 
wanted to do something and, and, and stood their ground. Velvet Buzzsaw was a complete disappointment because it was about nothing. It was, it's a dead film. It's set in the, the art world um, and it's got characters that don't really do anything. It's got relationships that you don't care about and it's got a storyline where nothing really happens. It was such a fucking disappointment and it was a step backwards for everyone involved and including Netflix mm. because they made such a big hoo-ha about this. Jake Gyllenhaal, Dan Gilroy, Renny Russo. Tony Collette. Tony Collette. And yet it was terrible. It was really Really disappointing. Really yeah, really pretentious. Everyone just like kind of creaked around like they had a stick up their ass, just like, oh. Painful. Which of course is the art world. Yeah. But do it in a interesting way it wasn't sharp or clever enough no it wasn't don't be objective about it yeah be subjective say something about the art world yeah because it really didn't it was it felt substandard like terrible schlocky tv Uh which is not something that you would expect from jake gyllenhaal yeah or the team that made nightcrawler which is a brilliant film Mm. It's just did, a, it was just a fucking shame. Was Nightcrawler his debut, directorial debut? I think so, yeah. So it was he like wrote that, and directed it. Mm, so it's that tricky second film. Yeah, He's possibly. Like a Richard E. Kelly style. Uh, yes, yeah. Where he's just amazing and then massive Donnie Darko and then Southland Tales. Tales. Yeah. yeah, it's just a shame uh, really because it could have been great. Because the trailer the, was the trailer fantastic. Looked brilliant. Yeah, but gave away everything. Yes, unfortunately. As usual. Well, Velvet Buzzsaw. Velvet Buzzsaw. All right. My number three worst film of the year is Greta, which is Neil Jordan. He did Byzantium. He did The Crying Game. Um, And uh, yeah, it's like one of his, I think it's his first film in a while. Since Pluto Nash? Not Pluto Nash. Pluto Um, Nash. Breakfast on Pluto? Uh, It's his first film since Byzantium, which is 2012. And what was the one before that? Ondine, 2009. The one before that? The Brave One, 2007. And before that? Breakfast on Pluto. Breakfast on Pluto, that's it. Not Pluto yeah. Nash. I knew it did something like that. Yeah, so he did The Crying Game, which is a brilliant, brilliant really piece of British film. filmmaking. Um, and actually, I don't know we what... studied it in university and like... It's... Same. Yeah. Um, I don't know what Greta is. I haven't heard of it. Greta? Is it about, you have stolen my youth. <laughs> How dare you? You talk about money. I want a cookie. I mean, that's a five-star film right there. <laughs> it's not about Thunberg, is it? No, it's not about her. It's about a, a young woman played by Chloe Grace Moretz. She forgets her bag on the train. She goes oh, to pick it up. And who's the bad woman? Isabelle Huppert. Oh, yes, of course, from it's Elle. Isabelle Huppert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she was in She was in Elle, and she was, I yes. think she was also in that black and white dinner, the party. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, she's a fantastic actress. And what she's doing in schlock like this, I have no idea. Um, she wanted the conservatory? Yeah. She wants an extra bit of money? It's another film where the trailer gives away that she's crazy. Mm. And so there's no tension. It's just a bad version of Misery, basically, where she's targeting young women because she's lonely and crazy. Yeah. Um, and you start to discover why she is that way. Fair enough. Is um, it an interesting reason? Just that she lost her daughter when she was younger. Oh, boo-hoo. I know. And it's just like... I thought we'd got beyond, like, 
our our society you know the western society at the moment is so much about being aware of mental ill health uh-huh. and trying to be sensitive about it and talk about it in a serious way and this just takes the crazy hollywood approach which is she crazy and there's you know she's just crazy and she's gonna kill everyone and it's just shit basically is it a script that's been knocking about for ages because it it feels it, like it, it just that description makes it sound like it's sort of fatal attraction era yeah no it's, the hand that rocks the cradle i'm pretty sure it's like a brand new script by by neil jordan right yeah um maybe this is what um Maybe this is Quentin Tarantino's fear that great directors lose it. I mean, Neil Jordan, he did The End of the Affair and, and like, the, like you said, The Crying Game. Interview with the Vampire. He um, did do Interview with the Vampire, didn't he? Yeah. So, and that's a phenomenal film. Yeah. That's the only decent Anne Rice film. What other ones have there been? Oh, there's like all um, oh, the... Less, Less Sat and Queen of the Damned. Yeah. yeah. I was so disappointed by Queen of the Damned when uh-huh. that came out. My God. My third is another disappointment, and oddly, a tricky second film. Oh, Ariaster's Midsummer. Oh, okay, yeah. What, it start. I mean, it starts off with this heavy, sort of dread, mm. rainy feeling where this girl she gets a call from her parents saying, "Have you seen your sister?" Um, oh no, she doesn't get a call from her parents. No. How could she? But she gets. She's trying. No, she's trying to find her sister, but it turns out the sister has murdered not only herself mm. but the parents in their bed. Yeah, and you think, oh my god, this is this is going to be like a, a really twisted who done it? No, it just kicks that to the side, and they go off to Sweden and start pissing about with a cult. Yeah, it turns into standard Wicker Man territory mm-hmm. that is laughable. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were laughs. In the cinema, when the old women were physically pushing the guy's ass to make him fuck, mm-hmm. it it is it is a it, it it was a waste of time. There were characters introduced that weren't developed. Characters disappeared yeah. with no explanation. If you have Will Poulter in your film, use him. Yeah. Don't just keep him on the sides and then make him disappear because you don't know how to write a character arc. Mm. It was a, it was just a, a huge disappointment and far too long. And I can't believe A24, the distribution company, allowed Ariasta to release a director's cut, which yeah. was about 20 minutes longer because we didn't need it. It didn't need to be two and a half hours in the first place. Yeah. It does not need to be close to three hours. He's not Martin Scorsese. Yeah. <laughs> He's not being Irishman. I was... I was kind of weirdly enthralled by Midsommar, but I was also really disappointed. And it's, it was just bizarre how it kind of... Ariaster's debut the year before that was Hereditary. Mm. And Hereditary had that really dark, oppressive mood that then we see in the first 10 minutes of Midsommar. And yes. it's this weird, almost like transitionary thing where he goes from Hereditary into passages literally new. Um, it goes from a very... F- aesthetically dark to just and it's really upsetting because she's crying like she's howling the grief of it yeah really really difficult to watch and then suddenly it's frolicking around sweden yeah but but aesthetically dark to aesthetically very bright and in the daytime yeah and that's fine like you can there is a there is um a chance to play with tension and 
you know, bright, brightly lit environments don't necessarily mean safe and unscary. Agreed. You know, look at The Shining. The Overlook Hotel is brightly lit a lot yeah. of the time and it's fucking terrifying. Yeah. Um, but I just think the thing with Midsommar is it's so unfocused. And having read interviews with Ari Aster both before and after the film, of seeing the film, he talks about it as like the most upsetting breakup film you'll ever see kind of thing but it actually isn't about the breakup because no. it gets distracted it's by about the so cult. many things yeah it's yeah. just a shame it because is. he sets up in the first 15 minutes that brilliant concept and then ignores it for the next yeah. two hours and ten it's not I, if it had stuck really closely to um the two main you know florence Pugh and um jack rayner and their relationship crumbling yeah. in the under the pressure of this environment yeah that could have been a really great film do you think he was not necessarily tarnished but do you think the expectation because the marketing for hereditary was all based around this is the scariest film since the exorcist if you like the shining if you like the omen you're yeah. gonna love this film was he tarnished by that once you've compared your film to <laughs> three of the greatest horror films ever created yeah are you now only a horror director because he said that he's not going to make any more horror films mm. but this is and not horror no and he has said that this he doesn't see this as a horror film in the same way that hereditary is he wanted to kind of literally lighten it up and play around with that and i really yeah. i do respect him as a filmmaker i think he's a pretentious filmmaker a lot of filmmakers are but i do respect him and Some he of the does best have more well, right yeah. but he clearly has a vision but I think he's got that. I think he was so uh, kind of lauded and celebrated with Hereditary that he's, I can only assume he's suddenly surrounded by yes people. Yeah. And that shows in Midsummer, which they, sh- they should have been an editor or somebody saying this script needs to be tightened and focused. And um, he didn't maybe have that. So. And that's a shame. That's a real shame because... But he might learn from it. Well, know? hopefully. I really hope so. Yeah. I really, so. I really think the first hour of Hereditary is so solid. Yeah. I, I, it loses me by the, the turning point. Yeah. What's your number two? Uh, my number two is The Nun by Corin Hardy, which is a real shame because Corin Hardy directed... N-U-N a, or N-O-N-E? The Nun, N-U-N. Right. <laughs> the Noon. The Nothing Will Get You. <laughs> Corin Hardy directed a great debut, which was The Hallow, which is, he's Irish. He directed this very folklore Irish horror film. Ah, oh, um, Very, yes, exactly. Oh, very small scale, but with some great uh, monster movies in. Like, was monster, that recently? Uh, it was, I think it was 2016. Oh, so reasonably recently. It was at Sundance. He has been tossed around a bit because he was meant to be doing the Crow film. Another one. That fell through. And then he eventually ended up doing this, The Nun, which is part of the Conjuring universe. I was going to ask if it is part of that. Yeah. And it fills in a part of, you know, the history of that scary nun who does appear in The Conjuring 2. <sighs> She's terrifying in that. I get confused between The Conjuring and... Insidious. Insidious. Yeah, me too. All- Blumhouse shit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, sadly, the nun is just bad. It's just she's a bad nun. She is scary. The actual nun is scary, but the whole plot is a mess. Yes, it's a joke, and it has no tension. It doesn't make any sense. You don't really know why anyone's doing anything. I but have... these films aren't made for scares, are they? They're made for 
Well, it's the old Roger Corman, isn't it? You've got a cool title. Mm. You need to get X, Y, and Z in there. Do it for less than X amount. And then we're going to put it out on this day. Go, go, go. You've got yep. 20 days to make a film. Off you go. See ya. Yeah. That's do exactly things what which are familiar. You've got to have the jump scares with that ridiculous sound that everyone uses. Yeah, I know. Knives always, regardless of whatever they're touching or if they're just wafting in the air, will <laughs> always have a completely unrealistic metallic blade sound to it. Oh, yeah. Oh. <laughs> It's just really weird because um, the guy who wrote it, Gary Doberman, he's he's got a real hit and miss kind of track record. Like he directed, um, well, he wrote the script for the the both of the It, the new It films. Really? He wrote the scripts for those. Okay. He wrote the script for the first Annabelle about the doll. That was bad. But he wrote the mm-hmm. script for the second Annabelle, which was really good. And he directed Annabelle Comes Home. And then he did the new, or he's doing the new Salem's Lot. So he's got like a real mixed thing going on and i just wonder if the nun just was un- too much there's too much or going on maybe it was just the case of here's a bunch of money yeah you got six weeks do Good some luck. work yeah i guess so they're, they're jobbing you know the writers it's no secret in hollywood that writers are paid the worst mm. so if you've got bills if you've suddenly got a mortgage because you've got some it money and now you've got a mortgage but it's not going to cover the whole thing you've got to write the nun rush it out Gotta make some money. I actually quite enjoy the Conjuring films, and I was, you know, I enjoyed the Annabelle films. Is that so. the Enfield case? Is it that one? Yeah, yeah. Like the first one was really fun. The second one was weird, but was kind of a good watch. And they're set in the seventies, aren't they? Yeah. Patrick Wilson. Patrick Wilson, Vera yeah. Farmiga. That's why I get confused because, because he's in Insidious as well. Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. and they're, they're basically the same style, the same yeah. aesthetic. Yeah, they are the same sort of look. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my number two is The Dirt, directed by Jeff Tremaine. I've never even heard of it. So The Dirt is the Motley Crue movie that debuted oh. on Netflix. I read The Dirt, which was their biography, and it, it came out about 20 years ago, or, or just less than 20, and I read it maybe a couple of years after. It's written from four points of view, so it keeps jumping between the bandmates. Mm. Right, You've got four different bandmates, and it keeps jumping. So you, at times you see the same event, but now suddenly from a different point of view. Okay. They missed a trick with the film. Mm-hmm. Whereas the book, it could be quite meta. It's so packed full of anarchy. It really is a, a, a really bloody good read. And, and it, it delves really deep into four really fucked up individuals who come together to be a really fucked up band. But the film takes this completely flippant tone for what is essentially very serious things. Mm. Nicky Six died multiple times because of his heroin addiction. But here it's played out like some melodramatic moment on a TV novella, you Mm. know, those Spanish novella TV shows. There's no... Mio's deal. Yeah. There is no consistency. They don't, they don't really do the seeing things from multiple points of view, except once through the film, and then ignore it. There was no real through line. It felt very vignette um, and they just wanted to make a cartoon of some rock and roll moments, like when... Ozzy Osbourne snorted his own piss. And whoever they got to play Ozzy Osbourne, they must know Ozzy is 
from Birmingham and not London because uh, the guy had a Cockney accent. Oh God! It was it was a really piss poor, again a wasted opportunity to do a really great rock and roll excess hmm. uh, cautionary tale. Instead, it was just celebrating the things that hmm. are terrible about the people in in Motley Crue, and, and it's, it's weird because Nicky Six is very much a he doesn't celebrate the fact that. Or, or feel proud about the fact that he was a drug addict and a heroin addict and a user. He's written a couple of books now as a cautionary tale. Mm. But this film completely undermines all of that. It's just a shame. Mm. It's just a shame because the, the original book, The Dirt, is, is phenomenal. And this was just like a cartoon. And it doesn't surprise me that the director also directed Jackass. Oh, wow. So where's the... Where's the where's tone? the depth? Yeah. Where's the, the 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 reality? Huh? What a bizarre jump! It took them fifteen years to get this made. Yeah, and this is what they ended up with. Wow. It's terrible. And is it down to the director? Do you think? I think it's down to the band, Nikki Six, being so close to this project mm. that I think they lost their vision as as little bits get chipped away and changed gradually mm. over the past fifteen or so years to get the funding, I think it just completely lost integrity. its, its integrity, its bite, its mm. focus. Huh. It should have been a like a 10-part miniseries because there's so much in there. Yeah. There's so much in there. You know, they grew up in the 60s. They formed the band in the 80s. They became the biggest band in the, the world. Then it all crumbled. Then they became the worst band in the world. Then they had the big return. And now then they called it quits. Mm. There's a lot in there. There's, you know, 35, 40 years worth of history. You cannot squeeze that into 90 minutes. Mm. Isn't that, isn't there like a therapy phrase where it's like, you are the most unreliable narrator in your own life? Oh, 100%. Like, so they shouldn't have done it. They should have let somebody else take their story and and do it for them. Yeah. You know, you can't trust your own narration. I don't think they wrote this script. Okay. But they obviously wrote, the book with a writer yeah it's just a shame because yeah. now you know if you wanted to do a really decent version of it you'd have to wait 10 years like we're now seeing with his dark materials mm-hmm. and maybe the dark tower we have to wait oh, for yeah. a real solid adaptation of the dark tower although spider-man just kept doing it until it got it right so but that's a little did. different because it's not necessarily based on one source novel yeah spider-man is a character mm-hmm. that they can write a new story for you can't really take motley crew and do a, an adventure <laughs> <laughs> they only have one story because they're real people yeah what's your number one worst film of 2019 my number one worst film of 2019 is i feel like i'm announcing the winner of x factor <laughs> which is funny because rachel actually... <laughs> Close, it's X-Men Dark Phoenix. I never saw it, and that's the first X-Men film that I haven't bothered to see in the cinema since Brian Singer's sequel. Days of Future Past? Yeah. No, no, no. Oh, no. Apocalypse. No, X2, Brian Whoa. Singer's sequel. His first sequel. Okay, well, he's right. in a few. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Whew. Tell me about Phoenix. X-Men Dark Phoenix, it's directed by Simon Kinberg, who has written pretty much all of the X-Men films, at least co-written them. Um, since? Since, I don't know, since like before. 
So he got to do X-Men 3, The Last Stand. Yeah, so he... Because that's the last time they did the Dark Phoenix storyline. Yeah, and he says, oh, we fucked it up when we did Last Stand. I personally disagree because I actually really quite like that film. Um, no, he's been on, he's been in the franchise since the very beginning, since the first X-Men. And this is the first one he's directed? It's the first one he's directed. And he makes such a ham fist of it. It's like, you know, trying to do the Dark Phoenix plot again... Mm-hmm that's one strike against it. Because it's like, I don't care. We've seen this before. Like, what is the But they go point? to space in this one. They do the space thing, which is from the comics. Yeah. Um, is that a push too far? Because they've never left the planet before. Yeah. Yeah, they kind of go out into space properly. Which I did find weird and jarring, actually. Because is they it always... like when Bond went to space in yeah. Breaker? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> And she gets, like, possessed or killed slash possessed by the form of the phoenix. Her from Game of Thrones? Yeah, Jean Grey. What's her real name? Sophie Turner. Married to? Uh, Jonas. What's his face? Joe Jonas. Yeah, him. Oh, I just want to run my hand through his eyebrow. So lucky. <laughs> um, it's just not good. X-Men Dark Phoenix. It just has all the, the hallmarks of a franchise that is dragging itself towards the grave you know it's, it's in the grave already it's just heaping dirt on top of its ragged corpse it's <laughs> pulling just, the dirt itself kill me it please. is but it's just, just bury me which is it set in done. the 90s fuck knows because the first one's 60s the second yeah. one's 70s third one 80s so if this is set in the 90s and it's not then the characters should look close to how they looked in the first x-men film which was mm-hmm. 2000 yeah but i mean they they get around that by saying that Days of Future Past kind of reset yeah, the timeline and stuff. It, right? Yeah, so I don't really know. It's a fucking mess. I can't explain it any more than that. You know, there's a scene where Michael Fassbender's in it just because he has to be. And he is trying to like hold a helicopter in the air or something. He's just with like, his hands or with stand- his magnet. Yeah, he's standing on the ground straining like he's... In that way. Yeah. And kind of just going, oh, I've had enough of this. Um, and it's just like, yeah, us too. It's just really bad. I, it made me feel tired and I, my, my faith in humanity was etched. But this is it. They're not doing any more no. of the, this iteration. Thank fuck. It's done. It's so dead. I, I was asking you. And Well, no, I think they aren't. They're going to have to wait because now Disney own Fox. Fox. So Disney own X-Men. They need to figure out what they're going to do. If I was X-Men. them, I would... Cut this this cast loose. Mm-hmm. See ya. Relaunch the X Men in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah, and launch it as they actually are just kids in the school. Yes. Like, just take it back to what the cartoon was. Yeah. The cartoon was great. Take it back to that fun, we've got powers, aren't they crazy? You know. But, I mean, also, it, it still does have that re- very relevant social thing, which has always been the great thing about X Men, which is yes. this is such a kind of a... Um, it's Met- civil it's like rights. A, it, yeah, it's, it's like it's a metaphorical for the civil rights crime. movement in yeah. the sixties. Yeah, exactly. And, and then obviously, Brian Singer was able to bring utilize it, the, it for the LGBTQ community, the LGBTQ plus yes. spin, which would be great for the Marvel, the Marvel Cinematic Universe because there are no gays there apart from that one that was really sad about his husband dying. And apparently, um, Val Haller is going to be. Oh a yeah, lesbian. the new Thor. But is this is bisexual. The, this is the yeah. thing that I hate is that it's always. Um, I mean, this is great for lesbian representation, but Hollywood's terrified of gay men. They can't just have a gay male 
character yeah they have to start with lesbians because they're safe and they're not serious and you know men still like them you know it's really it's so pandering and it's it's tokenistic and it's i hate it you know it's great for the lesbian community to have that as something that is theirs but as gay men we are ignored Mm. we're sidelined always yeah but if you say that to them then they'll say well you're not appreciating the fact that we're putting a bisexual character in there Mm. i think it's they just don't get they just don't get it it's half a toe in the diversity pool yeah that's all it is so my number one bad film Mm -hmm. of 2019 is last christmas (laughs) i can't believe you've seen it did you watch it yesterday i saw it yesterday oh god (laughs) (laughs) this is the george michael inspired Christmas movie written by Emma Thompson, directed by Paul Feig, mm. starring Amelia Clark. She's Henry, this Henry Gold Golding. Uh, I don't know his name from Crazy Rich Asians. I don't know his name, um, but he sorry, she uh, is a bit of a fuck up. She's just come back from somewhere we don't she's, know where. She's a bit of a flea bag, isn't she? Um, yeah, kind of. Her her life is not in order. She works as an elf in a Christmas shop in. Covent Garden, and those shops are not as big as they're making out here. Uh-huh. Right? Just as a by the by. It's hell going in there. Well, it's gigantic, this shop, and those little, <laughs> those little shops in Covent Garden yeah. are boutiques. They you can are, barely turn around in them. I mean, they're smaller than this kitchen. Yeah. And that includes the staff toilet and the stock room. <laughs> so, uh, she's a fuck up. Her sister is doing really well. They are um, Yugoslavian immigrants having come here in the mid 90s after the the war or during the war they had to flee and she's apparently got some sort of heart issue um and she meets and begins to warm to this chinese guy played by henry golding and they have this sort of relationship and there's this narrative thread where she's helping the homeless and there's this brexit thread her mother's really worried it's all based on one line from a george michael song <laughs> oh yeah last christmas last I christmas i gave you my heart yeah okay so we and know... that's it because the next bit and the very next day you gave it away is not relevant so <laughs> bye bye get rid of that cut that off it's just last christmas i gave you my heart you bitch in the way that mamma mia takes abba songs and weaves a story yeah. out of it jukebox musical this doesn't right this doesn't the only connection to the george michael songs is that one line mm. george michael songs appear Mm-hmm. Sometimes, are, they, are they wham songs more than george michael george michael ah. and a couple of whams okay they're so on the nose sometimes she's literally having a sleep on the couch and wakes up and the tv is playing wake me up before you go go uh. there's no character development really the dialogue is so piss poor it's 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 immediately forgettable i don't understand how the actors had the <laughs> The ability to to say... I mean, you could write the shit, but you can't say it. Mm-hmm. And the aesthetics is just... It was it had the aesthetics of a piss-poor John Lewis advert before they started doing the big John Lewis advert. You know, very soft focus, very clean and aesthetic. London's never looked so glitzy mm-hmm. and glamorous. Mm-hmm. This is substandard 
Richard Curtis. Whoa. This is substandard Nancy Meyer. Whoa. It is fucking dire. <laughs> Danny dire. It's, it is really piss poor. And it's a, it's a shame because Emma Thompson is a brilliant actress and she's really annoying in the film. And she's a brilliant writer and yeah. she's written this. And yeah. I don't understand. Did she write it in two days? <laughs> it's, it's, it's shocking. Oh. And it's, it's a real, you know, if, if everything she's done is a diamond, this is a, this is a piece of coal in the bag. <laughs> it's, it's really quite oh, no. disheartening. And you oh, just think... Disheartening. Disheartening. You just think, why have you done this? Mm. Why have you pissed on George Michael's songs mm. in this terrible, terrible way? And the thing that I find most horrendous about it is not only is it a badly made film, which is why it's my number one bottom, but <laughs> George Michael was a gay man. He lived his life as a gay man and then he obviously came out as a gay man and he was very connected to certain things that he saw as part of gay culture, cottaging, uh, open relationships, but just generally being as proud as he could be uh, as being a gay man and yet his songs are being used to tell the story of a stereotypically white girl wanted a stereotypically heterosexual, hmm. heteronormative relationship. Mm-hmm. There is a lesbian in there, but it side character. Yeah, of course. And kind of cliche because she's angry. Oh, God. Angry lesbian. I just think everyone who was involved should just really take a look at themselves and think, was it worth the money? <laughs> what the fuck happened to Paul Feig? I know. I've been re-watching... Freaks and Geeks, which was a brilliant TV show he made in, in 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. He he created it. Jude Apatow um, produced it. Um, Seth Rogen, James Franco. Franco, Jason Siegel. Yeah. They are all discovered from this TV show. Absolutely brilliant. And yet his films are absolute dog shit. <laughs> the last one, what was it called? A Simple Favour. Oh yeah, I haven't seen that. Really bland, substandard, girl on the train bullshit. Oh, okay. The one before that, what was it? Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters, yeah. Awful. Mm. Really awful, awful stuff. He's got no style. He's got no charisma. He he doesn't seem to care about the performances or the visual aspect of a film. And if that's the case, fuck off the radio. (laughs) Fuck off and do a podcast if you don't care about the visuals and you mm. don't care about the performances. Like us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but seriously, film is a visual medium. Mm. And if you're not going to have a personal style, then just leave. Someone else wants that position. Someone else deserves that position more than you. Mm. He's a terrible filmmaker. He's a hack. He's an absolute <laughs> hack. He's clearly doing this for the money. It's harsh, just awful. Harsh words here. Harsh, the, but it just makes me really angry studio. when when this kind of substandard crap is is produced. It's real hen party filmmaking. Mm. It's really, really terrible. And it's patronising as well because it's basically saying, "Oh, you'll see this anyway because we want your money." Well, it it costs minimum now like thirteen quid a, a film ticket. 
if you go to a shit theatre, mm. the theatre I go to is like 18 quid a ticket. Wow. So fuck him. I mm. want my money back. <laughs> All right. Should we watch some good films now? Yeah. Go All on right. then. Right. Let's, top let's five cleanse, of 2019. Cleanse the palette on 2019. We've douched out the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> the bottom is gone. Let's firmly grasp at the top. Okay. So my number five is The Favourite. Oh, okay. Which I had forgotten came out this year, but it came out okay. on like the 1st of January or something over here. I think it came out in December in the US, but for all intents and purposes, The Favourite is my 2019 number five. I only watched it about four weeks ago because I completely missed it. Really? Just just couldn't seem to watch it. Um, and it finally, I found it on a streaming service and, and bought it. And I really, really liked it. I was just... I don't know. I was. It was just so cleverly done. It had such a style and personality that was different. It wasn't your average um, powdered wig kind of period drama. It, yeah. It was such a it's very knowing. It it's really it knowing. A period drama. Yeah. It. It was opulent but cold. Like the visuals were really cold. Yeah. Um. I guess they shot it in the winter because when they're outside shooting pigeons, it's frost on the grass mm. and their breath is frosting in the air and it's just great i mean i didn't necessarily know exactly what it was trying to say it just seemed like a real tragedy yeah like a such a, a sad state of affairs it doesn't necessarily have to say yeah anything but it's very much a like a, a, a shakespearean level right relationship tragedy yeah and it's great that the relationships based on, based on real aspects yeah, yeah, yeah. to queen anne's life and her yeah. relationships with her her best friend and also this one that infiltrated her court mm. yeah i just thought it was great i thought it was howlingly funny and then really guttingly sad as well i think the director he is one of my favorite directors uh-huh. of the last couple of years yorgos lanthimos did the lobster did killing of a sacred deer uh Tooth, the alps the man is a fucking genius and he's mm. got such a clear vision yeah. and those costumes oh Sandy Powell. I photographed those costumes Did you? at a event about a year ago, actually. Oh, cool. Um, they were honoring or, or celebrating her. Mm. So they had a film screening of it, but I was f- shooting the costumes. They, mm. are, they are exquisite. And some of them are just made from like jeans they found in charity shops. Right. That denim dress that she's wearing when she gets covered in shit. Yeah. It's just the Emma Stone is just jeans repurposed. Huh. But they're brilliant. So clever. Yeah. The film is hilarious. I saw it twice. I mm. fucking love it. Olivia Coleman is brilliant. It's highly quotable. Yeah. Like I'll always quote it with my mate Michael. We go, oh, oh, I did not know that. <laughs> Don't look at me. <laughs> Vote your eyes. Don't lean at me. And But he's also, you know, it's rare that you get a filmmaker who's able to balance a witty script with knowing when to just tell something visually. Mm. So the script is incredibly quotable and witty and clever, but then you've got the moment right towards the end where, is it Queen Anne? She she sees Emma Stone's character stepping on the rabbit. Yeah. And she suddenly realises that knows. is not a nice girl. I've been well, no, completely duped. Yeah, she just, she understands completely. Yeah. That, Fuck, I've had the, the wall pulled over my eyes. Yeah, and it's really sad. And it's just a lovely little moment. Well, it's a horrible little moment that is told visually. Didn't need 
Emma Stone to suddenly start screaming yeah. at somebody down the corridor and then she realizes that way it's that really visceral visual that sticks with you of a of a big human crushing an innocent little white rabbit and yeah, her babies yeah yeah her babies exactly which they bonded over babies. they yeah. bonded over the fact and that they lost children with a, a, a sort of a a, 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 um, a double exposure mm. of the rabbits sort of bopping about and Queen Anne looking at Emma Stone it's great I loved it so what's your number five my number five is Jane Silent Bob reboot oh wow <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling this was going to happen <laughs> I'm by Kevin Smith. I'm I'm a big Kevin Smith fan. Um, I've been watching his films since the '90s. Of of a filmmaker still making films today, he is probably the one I've been with the longest. Yeah, you know John Landis doesn't make films anymore. Stanley Kubrick doesn't make films anymore. David Lynch or does he? Okay, or does he? He's in space. He's a baby in space Fidelio. with a camel. <laughs> yeah. So he he. Obviously, had his heart attack. Now he's making this film, so he's very much thinking about death and thinking about his life over the past twenty-five years since Clerks came out, and fatherhood, and fatherhood, and it's not the best of his films. It's not even the best film in my list. It starts off incredibly, incredibly strong. Um, it does waver a little bit, but. There's so much there that I felt emotionally connected to because it is essentially like the first Jay and Silent Bob film because this is a reboot or a sequel or a requel to his 2001 film Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. But it doesn't adhere to the reboot rules really because it, it's still the or the original cast. Yeah, exactly. So... Um, but it, it it is just essentially a 90-minute Kevin Smith in-joke film. Yeah. And I love that because he is playing to his own audience. You know, it's an $8 million budget. He hasn't spent basically a penny on print advertising. It's all Mm. been on social media. Mm -hmm. He's sold out his tour because he's touring with the film. Very clever. Right? Because he knows that he is the selling point. He is the selling point, right? He doesn't need to get any... He doesn't need to try and get any new audience members. He just has an inbuilt audience. So Mm -hmm. if that's the case, fine. I will gear my film towards the people who I know will come and watch it. Yeah. It's it's such a unique... And he's doing like, what, 46 dates? I think he's doing like 20 or 30 dates and there's like mm. matinee shows and evening shows. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the, the other night he was doing three shows in one day. Yeah. The BFI, then two at Prince Charles, I think it was. Mm. And there was two at the, the Genesis, mm. the way we saw it. We saw him at the Genesis. He came out and did a and a afterwards. And it, it's such a brilliant way to release a movie because yeah. you get to see a, a really fun movie and then you get to hear the stories. Oh God, he's like an anecdote machine. Yeah. He's been in Hollywood yeah, you for put a long 50, time. You put 50p in him and yeah. he comes out with a, with a story. <laughs> Who put 50p in, Kevin? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's, just, it's just great. And then, you know, other people might, wa- might watch it. Like you, you don't have the same connection to Kevin Smith as I did. Mm-hmm. But I know that if something, you know, on the same level as, as this came out some of that if they did like a charmed movie with the original cast you'd be right there and whether it was good mm-hmm. or bad objectively subjectively you would fucking love it yeah this not his best film certainly not the best film in the last five ten years but as an experience it was brilliant i loved every moment of it 
I didn't love it. I enjoyed it. And I, but I think you're right. It is just about the experience of it. And it isn't, there's nothing malicious about his films. There's nothing malicious about this film. It feels so loving and it's so affectionate towards pretty much every single person who has helped him build his career. You know, we've got Ben Affleck in there. You've got... And they haven't um, spoken in about a decade. Yeah, you've got like Matt Damon. You've got Chris Hemsworth in there as like a new kind of bow to his, uh, new arrow to his bow or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah I, I thought it was really fun. And I, I, everyone around us was having an absolute blast. Yeah. Um, and as, I think... As a cinematic visual experience, no. It was quite badly shot <laughs> at times. I think yeah. the Some the of scenes, the sound was a bit off. Some of the sound, yeah. And I think the um, that might have been the cinema, actually, because at one point the sound blipped. Oh, yeah. and I, that, that's a cinema thing. But um, during the Chasing Amy section, yeah. it was so badly lit. Yeah, but yeah. That I think that's always been the charm of Kevin Smith, that everything's a bit janky, everything's a bit mm. um, ropey. Someone once said in a review for Clerks back in the day, his style is he has no style. <laughs> yeah. He can morph into anything. Yeah. Yeah. He is just a very competent director mm. with a big personality. Yeah. It's like a John Waters. His this film is just like it's like a fart with a heart. It's like a <laughs> fart with a heart. He would probably love that. <laughs> he would probably love that. But I loved it. Um, what's awesome. your number four? Number four is Avengers Endgame. Oh, okay. Um, now, which... Avengers Infinity War yeah. featured on both our top films last year. Yeah, and arguably it's the superior film, but Endgame comes loaded with such... Sorry, which one's infer- uh, superior? Infinity War. Okay. Yeah, arguably it's the best of the two. Mm-hmm. But Endgame has such a sense of finality to it. It has such a sense of you know, um, this is the culmination of a decade of world building, careful world building. You know, Mm. it's no one has really done anything like this. Not Not, in movies anyway. Not even like the original Star Wars trilogy. Nothing on this scale has Mm. ever been achieved in movies. Um, You know, franchises have always been retroactively created or like that was a success, so we'll do this now. But with this, you know, they very much had a game plan and you knew that and you were on the ride with them. Yeah. And this is like the big end game. This is where it's all culminating. And I'm not going to say that I'm a huge MCU fan. I've enjoyed a lot of them a lot and I've enjoyed some of them a little bit. But Endgame, I've never really experienced anything like that moment when every single character you've encountered over the last decade pile into this one enormous battle and like cgi battles are a dime a dozen they can be really irritating ready player one did it it was an absolute headache um but with endgame you know and love all of these characters it's you know you almost feel like your brain's going to explode because it can't contain the emotion (laughs) that is being required or you know i didn't find it emotional did you not no i thought it was one of the coolest things i've ever seen did not find it emotional wow I really, really did. I was like, I almost was in tears. It was just so, it was almost so big that I couldn't actually compute and I almost had to just cry to get it out. Um, I just thought it was fantastic. Really, did you have really a big cry? Uh, well, especially when Iron Man did his last little bit. Yeah, I did. And I've never had that experience and I'm not sure I ever will again. And that's, that's why it's in my top 10, top five, because even though it's not the best film ever made yeah 
or any by any of that stuff you know there's a lot of baggy stuff that happens in it um you know half the film <laughs> could be chopped out and tony stark um, just invents he just invents time travel in like a minute yeah it's really silly like but at least they had the balls to try a different kind of time travel and they were like well, they, they had the balls to do a different kind of movie because mm. there was basically no action in it it was a drama yeah and it reminded me not not too dissimilar of um Kill Bill Volume 1, Kill Bill Volume 2. Mm, yeah. Fight and talk, fight and talk. I think I said that on the Kill Bill episode. Yeah, you did. Yeah. Right? So it, it's it's great in that, that respect, but I don't... Like, I saw Infinity War twice. Yeah. I don't feel the need to see Endgame again. It I doesn't have that same, that same yeah. pull for me. I think I would watch it again if I was doing a double whammy, because <laughs> then you've got a complete story. Yeah. But I wouldn't just sling it on... To watch it on its own, I don't think. Because it's not, as, it's not, it's definitely not as fun as Infinity War. No. But there, but there are, are some, some really fucking hilarious things in there. But there are some also very, very touching moments. Love you three. Like when Tony Stark oh has to. Tony Stark. Tony Stark. <laughs> <laughs> like when Tony Stark goes to see his dad. Yeah. Played by um, Tony What's Slattery. It? No. John Slattery. John Slattery. Tony who Slattery was, is a British comedian. Who has only been in the films once, maybe? A couple of times. Was he in Winter Soldier? He was in the flashback. No, what was the third one? Third yeah, Winter, no, Civil War at the beginning. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, that one, yeah. Uh, but he was also, I think, he was a major player in uh, Agent Carter. John Slattery. Yeah. Oh really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Was I, Agent I Carter set was. in the? It can't be. No, no, no. Sorry, Dominic Cooper played. Dominic in, Cooper yeah, was in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Dominic Cooper's character grew up to be John Slattery. I find that bizarre because that's different. Thirty years. Yeah. Bizarre. Anyway. Anyway, so my number four, jumping ship over to DC, is Shazam. Oh, yeah. I thought it was the the most fun DC film ever, really. Mm-hmm. DC obviously went down the, the, the Zack Snyder dark and depressive route, which I love in, in films. I love in comics. But there was something about Shazam. It was so much fun. So much fun that I really want another one. I want another one of this same tone. It went for the Spider-Man Far From Home and the Spider-Man Homecoming tone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like Shazam as well. I think that it lost it a little bit in the finale where it all was just a bit too overblown. Uh But but even then it retained the emotion of it's all about the family. Uh I love the way it was so concise. And actually... I watched Shazam and Dark Phoenix both on the plane. They both start with a kid in the backseat in the 70s where something goes wrong. Oh, really? And yet Dark Phoenix goes off to be utterly, utterly shit. And Shazam (laughs) goes off to be great fun. But Shazam stays true to that first scene. And it's all about the family. And it's genius to set up the backstory of the villain first. Yeah. And then introduce the hero. Genius. Yeah, I loved it. I thought it was great. Genius. Genius. Um, I never really believed that the young kid, Billy Baston, uh-huh. and uh, Shazam were the same person. I never really fully believed that mm. um, in, the, in the way that I believe that the kid and Tom Hanks are the same person in Big. Yeah. There was a disconnect between Billy Baston, cynical, tough youngster, and Billy Baston, big Shazam, goofy Kind of lightning, lightning from my hands, <laughs> lightning from my hands. Love that. Yeah. Lightning from my hands. That's true. And that is, I mean, you could argue that with Big, they tried to cast 
Tom Hanks literally has an older version of that kid, whereas mm. Shazam is completely different. But I know what you mean characteristically wise, they are quite different. Yeah. But, but the, then but then if he felt that powerful in that new form, then maybe he would get really cocky and silly like that. But then it was just like sort of goofy, it was like a man child as yeah, opposed to arrogant and, 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 and mental with power. But if they carry on making fun superhero movies, mm. I think DC could could be just as big as Marvel again. Yeah. Anyway, what's your number three? My number three, I only watched it the other day, but everyone's been bugging me to watch it all year because they're like, this is the film that was made for you. And I know that it's a film that you wouldn't particularly enjoy. I would. I would or wouldn't. You wouldn't. Wouldn't. Um, it's called Booksmart. Oh, I never saw it. Yeah. I, I don't know if you would like it or not, but I really enjoyed it. Um, it's Olivia Wilde's directorial debut. Uh-huh. She is best known for being the kick-ass woman in Tron Legacy and various other films. Um, but it's a director de- debut. It's about two high school friends and they have spent, they've been focusing so much on trying to get good grades in school that they kind of forgot to have any fun. Right. And so on the night before graduation, they decide to try to go to this party where all the cool kids are and they set off on this journey to, to try to get there, basically. And How far away is it? discover themselves along the way. I mean, it's LA. And so it's very, a road movie? Various things of? go wrong. Um it's a road no, movie that doesn't really go anywhere. No, it, it hops location a lot. Uh-huh. It's not just on the road. Um and it, it's just it's just really well done and it 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 evolves very effectively. It it kind of the tone of it changes very effectively. Uh-huh. Um and the two the two lead girls in it are just brilliant. Um so it is Beanie Feldstein, who is Jonah Hill's sister, mm-hmm. um, and Caitlin Deaver, who I don't really know what she's done before but she's they're both fantastic they're both really funny they feel like real people um and it's almost like a modern day version of that film can't hardly wait um from the 90s with jennifer love hewitt it was like a real teen film is that the one where they do a makeover on her no right what was she's all that Ah. but yeah book smart is really great got some fantastic songs in it got a great kind of positive message to it um and i just really loved it it was really good fun was it kind of like ladybird it's off that ilk okay but i would argue it's better smarter more stylish more um, booky just sharper yeah yeah but it's definitely of that kind of indie teen girl comedy ilk i would say so big right now yeah yeah yeah. and yeah so it's great i will add it to my long list okay my number three is a documentary Oh, yeah. A, released on Netflix. It's called Tell Me Who I Am. Never even heard of it. Like, do you only watch Netflix now? <laughs> I, I quite like a, a Netflix documentary. I genuinely okay. think they're, they're quite... I mean, obviously everyone knows the big ones like Making the Murderer and this, that and the other. But, you know, when they put out a, a, a documentary, they're genuinely really, really, really well made. Mm. And they kind of go undiscovered. Mm-hmm. So Tell Me Who I Am is directed by Ed Perkins. Okay. It's about um, a guy called Alex Lewis and his twin brother, Marcus. So when Alex was 18 in 1982, he has a motorcycle crash. Hmm. And when he wakes up in the hospital, he looks to his right and there's Marcus, his twin brother. And to his left is a woman he doesn't recognise, asking if he's okay. And Alex turns to Marcus and says, Marcus, I don't, who is she? I don't know who she is. It was his mother. Ah, uh, right. He'd forgotten everything such severe mm. permanent amnesia permanent 
permanent Ouch. amnesia, just complete amnesia. The only thing he remembered his was his brother, his How twin awful. brother. Doesn't remember where he lives, doesn't remember his life, doesn't remember his studies, doesn't even remember his girlfriend. Mm. So then Marcus has to start filling in the gaps re-educating Alex about his life, showing mm. him photos. Oh, this is the holiday we went on. This is your room. This is the garden. This is the shed. Oh. This is how you make toast. That's and he tells Alex everything he needs to know. And it brings him closer. Then the mother and the father die, oh. however many years or months between. And while they're clearing out the belongings, Alex who was the one that had the motorcycle accident, unearths a family secret. And it completely throws his world into tailspin. Oh my God. The way that this documentary is told, it tells Alex's story and then it tells Marcus's story. Mm -hmm. It uses the house that they grew up in as almost like a character to itself. So there's lots of GVs of the place looking very looming because it's one of those country estates it's not Mm. massive it's like reconstructed farm properties but they also have alex and marcus separately telling their own story to the camera in a studio and then they bring them together Mm. it is one of the best thrillers i've seen in a long long time cool and does sound amazing i can't urge you enough but to go out and watch it what's it called it's called Tell Me Who I Am. Oh, God, that's such a forgettable title. How hilariously on point. <laughs> <laughs> but it's brilliant. Ed Perkins is a genius. Mm. And I hope, I hope that if he makes another film, he doesn't have the, the tricky second film mm. syndrome. Because if he makes another film like this, then he could be one of, you know, one of our, one of yeah. our, you know, Britain's best current filmmakers. Have you watched The Imposter yet? Yes, I have. Ah, it's amazing, yeah. isn't it? Yes, it it's is It's like, how the brilliant. hell, what is going on here? Yes. How did this family buy into this? <laughs> well, I think if you miss someone so much and suddenly your son comes back, mm. you will believe that that person is your son when you clearly know that is not my son. Yeah. What's your number two? My number two is Vice, directed by oh. Adam McKay. Mm-hmm. Again, it's been a long time since I saw it because it came out in January. It's basically about Dick Cheney who was the uh, vice president of George Bush. Um, And it kind of starts out around the time that the September 11th attacks happened. And then it flashes back and starts to fill in his backstory. Um, It's kind of like true fiction style. It's a bit, it's by Adam McKay, who did the big short. So it's of that style again. I don't, it's not quite as solid as the big short, but I still think it's such a, a fantastically well put together film it's so clever and funny and even though it's about sort of a political figure and it's you know very much entrenched in that world it doesn't feel alienated in the same way the big short was about something incredibly difficult to comprehend and yet in, you know took you by the hand and helped you understand it in a very entertaining way vice plays the same trick mm-hmm. um and takes this man who you think you know loads about and you've definitely seen him all over the news um, and tries to tell you more about him and kind of fill in who this person actually is. And It's, it's completely um, deconstructing him. Yeah. And, yeah. and taking him away or attempting to take 
the idea of Dick Cheney away from the demonized mm. caricature that the news stations will present him as and yeah. actually try and give him some humanity. Yeah. But the problem is when you think about what he sanctioned, mm. there is no humanity there. You're just left with an absolute asshole who is a war criminal. Yeah, who yeah. has never stood trial. Yeah. Because of a leg- of a legal loophole mm-hmm. in the American Constitution. But the film serves him, presents him as a fully rounded human being as uh-huh. well. Yeah. So you kind of you have to struggle with how you really feel about him. And when you see him with Amy Adams, who obviously is delightful and lovely, when you see him with her, you start to kind of soften a bit towards him, but then you see him doing horrific things and you just think what a monster how could he possibly do that there's just some great things that stick in my mind even though it's been almost 12 months since i saw it you know the shakespearean in moment when they're in bed together yes. just talking shakespeare hilarious <laughs> um the bit where they roll credits halfway through the film <laughs> brilliant um and then that beautiful ending with the heart transplant is brilliant yes um and in a way that last christmas clearly wasn't um this pulls it off beautifully and actually turns it into kind of poetry as well you know it's, it does so much so well and one of those performances from christian bale again where oh God. he just becomes someone else vanishes yeah even when he's playing younger version of dick cheney and he just looks like christian bale he embodies this kind of drunk mess yeah so perfectly you know yeah and yeah but the transformation when he's got all the prosthetics is pretty astounding what watching having watched this and you know the big short has become its own style its own visual genre in a lot of ways um and netflix recently released the laundromat by steven soderbergh and it is awful it is just such a mess is it trying to be the same style and it tries to do the same thing but it does it for shock value it does things for shock value rather than for honesty and it feels so completely false which is funny because adam mckay did a lot of the same things but it doesn't feel felt false it feels honest and inviting yeah whereas the laundromat feels like it's trying to trick you and it you know it does it in a number of different ways that i won't spoil but it it keeps trying to trick you and it's like why just tell us just tell us what is the story so we'll stay away from the laundromat. so don't watch laundromat watch vice basically my number two is Joker, directed by Todd Phillips. Uh, which so I haven't you seen. still haven't seen. So back in the day when I... Well, I still read comics. Back in the day when I was getting into comics, I really loved this thing DC used to do. They had this sort of sideline of books that they put under their imprint, Elseworld. Hmm. And it's where they could take a character like Superman or Batman or whoever and just tell a story that isn't part of the continuity mm-hmm. i think the most famous and the most well-known elseworld series is called kingdom come it's a massive epic over four 48 page books whoa so big 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 story drawn by or rather painted by alex ross mm. so elseworld is a brilliant brilliant idea this i feel is the first elseworlds film Mm. It's taking the idea of the Joker and just creating a non-canon origin story. Joaquin Phoenix is phenomenal. It's, it's a transformation 
what he could do with his body, what he can do with his eyes and what he can do with his face and his mouth and his hands. He is like a modern day clown, hmm. not clown as in the Joker, but a clown as in the acting style, the physical Charlie Chaplin, the Buster Keaton. Hmm. What he can do physically is phenomenal. And it's not a surprise because we've seen him do that before in things like The Master. Yeah. I think this is as close to being an auteur as Todd Phillips is ever going to get. <laughs> it's grimy, it's gritty, it's dirty. And it doesn't, it doesn't pull its punches. It, it, it's really close to the bone. <laughs> to the point where a film like this would not get made under the Marvel banner. Yeah. It's too realistic. You know, there's no vat of chemicals. <laughs> it's really a psychological story about a guy with mental health issues who is completely neglected and failed by the system. Mm. Yes, you are meant to feel sorry for him. And yes, he will go on to commit murders. And that's unfortunately not such a bad thing. <laughs> Because it really brings up the idea that people don't necessarily just wake up in the morning thinking, well, I was normal yesterday, but now I think I'm just going to go commit some crime. Yeah, There's a reason why people would go out and shoot a school or go out and stab someone. You know, there's a reason people do this and it's mm. not, it's not appropriate. It's never been appropriate, but it's not appropriate anymore to just finger point and demonize people, yeah. regardless of whether they are classed as a terrorist or just a murderer or just a criminal. It has, we have to start looking at the wider reasons. What's going on in society that these people turn into this way? And that's what this film tries to get people to do, all the while having some Batman stuff in there. Because <laughs> Thomas Wayne is in there, um, Alfred Pennyworth, even baby Bruce Wayne. Wow. Right? Mm. So once again, yes, we see Bruce Wayne's, uh, Batman's origin. We see his parents gunned down in an alleyway. We we see the the pearl necklace snap and fall and yada, yada, yada. But it's trying to do something a lot deeper. It's trying to get us to think about why does society create these so-called monsters, inverted mm. commas. Like... The, the film monster that Paddy Jenkins directed, you know. Yes. Uh, Arlene Wernus. 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 I could just never say that name. Like vilified as a monster, but then that film really tried to mm. not um, condone anything that she did, but tried to understand how she got to that horrific point. Yeah. You know, and yes, she, she um, killed people, but she was also a victim prior to that. Yeah. You know, and how does this happen? Yeah, and that is the, you know, that's the problem. It's like, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Yeah. The, the fact that this person's a victim or the, the fact that this person has victimized other people. Mm. And people will say, well, it's just a comic book movie. Well, no, it's not just a comic book movie. All the best sci-fi, and I mean sci-fi in the traditional sense, not just spaceships and fighting. Mm. Arthur C. Clarke wrote sci-fi. Brian Aldist wrote sci-fi. Charlie Brooker writes sci-fi. Black mm. Mirror is literally holding up a Black Mirror to society and asking us to contemplate these really dark aspects and think about who is to blame and why. Mm -hmm. The fact that it's a comic book movie, I don't think should undermine it, its, its, um, its goal here. Mm. 
if anything, it's a great way to slip in a message to an audience who don't necessarily go to see yeah. a message movie. Yeah. It's, I think it's a really special film in that respect. Some of it's a bit ropey. There's some dodgy dialogue and there's some questionable acting at times, this, that and the other. But as a piece of cinema, I think it's brilliant. Mm. I think but it's not brilliant. your number one. Not my number one. My number one, along with your number one, will be revealed in the next episode. Oh, what? In the next episode, we are going to run down our top films per year from 2010 to 2019. So make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and TuneIn Radio so you don't miss that episode. And come and talk to us about our bottoms and our tops on Twitter. At Tornstabs Pod. We're off to record the next episode. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Joshua Winning. Cut. <laughs>